0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be discussing a massive case of welfare fraud perpetrated by the state of Mississippi. Also going to be talking about the threat of nuclear conflict. Also going to be discussing the human rights situation in occupied Western Sahara. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind.
1: Well, Mama Bear Nancy Pelosi's brazen political theater yesterday wasn't a legitimate political diplomatic visit to meet with a sovereign nation's leader. But her visit to Taiwan was an exercise in white supremacist arrogance and blatant U.S. provocation against China, the nation that Taiwan is actually a part of. As we've discussed on this show many times, the U.S. has claimed since the Nixon administration at least that it recognizes the People's Republic of China as the sole government of all of China and that they acknowledge the PRC's position that Taiwan is part of China. The interesting thing about this policy is that one word seemed to matter quite a bit to the U.S. government, because when China attempted to change the Chinese text from the original word acknowledge to the word recognize, Deputy Secretary of State Warren Christopher told the Senate hearing questioner, quote, we regard the English text as being the binding text. We regard the word acknowledge as being the word that is determinative for the U.S., end quote. Maybe in layman's terms, this seemingly minor difference doesn't matter. But it seems that the U.S. government wanted to make sure that they reflected in their policy that they admit that China believes Taiwan is part of China. That's the acknowledgement. But they will not go so far as to say that the U.S. government agrees that Taiwan is part of China. That would be recognition. And I'm making a wildly uneducated guess here, but I don't think it's unimportant that there was such a problem with changing this one word in this policy. Regardless, in the August 17th, 1982 U.S.-China communique, the United States did go one step further, saying that it had no intention of pursuing a policy of two Chinas or one China, one Taiwan. And that's been the public policy on Taiwan and China that the U.S. government has claimed to follow in every administration since then. But the U.S. government has also continued to maintain unofficial relations with the government of Taiwan, claiming that Taiwan's government is, quote, democratic, with the implication being that the government of China is not and is a separate thing. Because, you know, communism. But until yesterday... No U.S. official of Pelosi's rank had visited Taiwan since Newt Gingrich went in 1997 because this country is supposed to be adhering to the one China policy, right? Well, Pelosi just ripped that up and tossed it to the ground. Because aside from wanting to maintain and expand trade with Taiwan, Taiwan is currently the ninth largest goods trading partner with the United States, with $90.6 billion in total two-way goods trade between the two countries during 2020, the U.S. also wants to use Taiwan the way they're using Ukraine to fight a proxy war against China. That is as insane as it sounds, but a proxy war against Russia was warned against over and over and over again. But look at what's happening now. The New York Times reported back in May of this year that the Biden administration was pressing Taiwan to buy weapons more suited to win against China. They, the U.S. government, wants Taiwan to order missiles and smaller arms for Asymmetric warfare, that thing that they have going on in Ukraine right now, that's gained urgency since, guess when, Russia's alleged invasion of Ukraine. Of course, the Biden administration has been doing this very quietly with U.S. officials re-examining the capabilities of the Taiwanese military to determine whether it can fight off an invasion from China. But their reasoning behind this is, of course, that the proxy war in Ukraine that the U.S. EU and NATO actually started but blamed Vladimir Putin on signals that of course China is about to invade Taiwan like they claimed for weeks Putin was going to do when he he actually wasn't President Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan, who Pelosi met with yesterday, is all for this and is trying to orient the country's military toward this asymmetric warfare, buying a large number of mobile lethal weapons from the U.S. that weapons manufacturers in the U.S. claim are difficult to target and counter. But not everybody in Taiwan thinks this is a good idea. And even though Pelosi's visit was openly provocative toward China, Biden actually sent a bipartisan delegation of former senior national security officials to Taiwan in early March to talk to Ms. Tsai and other Taiwanese officials about their country's defense strategy and weapons procurement, among other matters. This was reported in the New York times in 2019 The State Department authorized $2.2 billion of sales of weapons to Taiwan that included 108 M1A2 Abrams tanks. On July 15th, Reuters reported that the U.S. State Department had approved the potential sale of military technical assistance to Taiwan worth an estimated $108 million. Taiwan's defense ministry said that they needed more weapons and military support from the United States to fend off, quote, the expanding military threat of the Chinese communists. Yeah, and they said the quiet part out loud that the U.S. doesn't want to say. China is no more planning to invade Taiwan than the Department of Defense is planning to invade Washington, D.C. But the virulent anti-communism, That has pushed the U.S. to start one proxy war against Russia, not a communist nation, but they used to be when they were the Soviet Union, and that's all that matters, and now potentially start another proxy war against China, which is definitely a communist nation. It is the stuff of irrational, illogical, completely insane, apocalyptic nightmares. But this is the policy being pushed by the Biden administration, which is why Pelosi violated Chinese sovereignty with her little junket yesterday. These people refuse to make sure poor families can eat. They have no answer for homelessness. They drag their feet on defending women's bodily autonomy and privacy rights. But they've been working feverishly to arm Taiwan for a proxy war against China. That's what you got. When you insisted on voting blue no matter who. Turns out it does matter. Matters quite a lot. Follow LukeMon Nation on Patreon.com/slash Nation for lots of great content.
0: And those are today's talking points. And you, a listen to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie LucMon. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us.
2: By any means necessary.
0: And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Basil Jupiter, an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation in Mississippi. Basil, thanks so much for joining us.
3: No problem, no problem. Glad to be here.
0: Absolutely. And, Basil, it's recently been revealed that Mississippi's Department of Human Resources, which is responsible for distributing federal funds to poor families, was actually robbing those same poor families, giving millions of dollars to, you know, the more wealthy, politically connected people in the state. And I believe that this fraud, which is what it is, this a uh, welfare fraud, was to the tune of about ninety-four million dollars. And I was hoping you could help us understand uh, just what's happening here and uh what it means for the people of Mississippi who will miss out on these resources.
3: Yeah, so exactly as you say, you know, um these funds were originally meant for temporary assistance for needy families, which is, you know, you know, exactly what it says, you know, it's supposed to be um assistance that's supposed to go to, you know, working class families, you know, and the thing with, you know, TANF, you know, which is what shortened to, is, is that, you know, in Mississippi, only 5% of those funds go directly to Mississippians. The rest of those funds go to, go through, you know, different nonprofits, different um, initiatives um, started by, you know, these different um, foundation leaders. And it just so happens that the majority of these people are very politically connected um, to the governor, to people in the legislature, to, um, you know, it's just in specific, you know, because Mississippi his leadership is mostly conservative, mostly it's, con- it's conservative leadership that they're connected to. So a lot of these programs are very like, you know, condescending and that, you know, they say, oh, we're going to start, you know, like, uh, you know, we're going to make sure like that these families have father figures, et cetera, et cetera. And we want to make sure that these people are, you know, actually, you know, getting jobs. So They have really strict work requirements. So this is where the hypocrisy of it comes along course, because of course, you know, they have these perceptions of, you know, these fans receiving assistance that, you know, oh, well they're, you know, they're stealing this money. They're stealing taxpayer dollars. Um, taxpayer dollars are wasted. That's why we need strict work requirements for TANN. Meanwhile, <laughs> Millions of dollars going missing, right? Millions of dollars going missing. And, you know, spoiler alert is, it's not the families that any families are taking this money. It's actually the very same nonprofit leaders, the very same politicians, and even like these sports stars like uh, Brett Favre, uh, you know, this uh, former wrestler, Dubias, and these people that sit on foundations, including like one of, you know, Mississippi's only billionaires, they're the ones that have been stealing money all this time. I mean, some of this, some of this stuff is completely just, you know, very, very frivolous, right? And these are supposed to be the financially responsible people. Um, one of the main nonprofit leaders um, is uh, Nancy New, um, and you know she sits on a bunch of boards, like you know, the Mississippi Athletic Foundation, and her she, her family he personally invested. This money, and for two million dollars for Previcis, a medical device company, for um for head injuries, uh, and then as well, um, th- this money was put towards a fitness boot camp run by you know former linebacker Paul Lacoste, you know, attended by professionals and state lawmakers, free of charge, and some of money was you know also spent at steakhouses, houses and the expensive ones for. $1 million. And he also got a $1 million speaking fee for Brett Favre. And you could say, well, maybe he inspired some people. And that, that was saying, well, he didn't show up for, for the uh, speaking engagement. So that money just went down the drain. Um, and then $160,000 to retired professional wrestler, Brett DiBiase, for per- personal drug rehabilitation treatment in Malibu, California. Um, so not even putting anything towards it. Mississippi's economy, plus forty-eight thousand dollars for work he did not do for related not for the you know, related nonprofit run by Nancy New, and nine thousand five hundred dollars per month mortgage for a former football star Marcus Dupree's ranch um, out in Florida, Florida Mississippi. Um, so you can definitely see this stuff is not being put towards the public good. is the ma- is the main thing here. That's and that's not even all of it. We also got to look at the five, and this is the main thing. And the main thing that you know our governor Tate Reeves doesn't want people paying attention to is the five million dollars put towards a stadium at um a uh, yeah stadium at University of Southern Mississippi. And the thing and the thing about this, yes is is that you know like a lot of you know usual suspects still on the board, you know, including Brett Favre. Including um, Poncho James, including a lot of these, you know, well-connected, you know, Mississippians, you know, at the, you know, Southern Mississippi, you know, Sports Foundation.
1: Yeah, you know, Basil. It's as you were explaining this. Of course, you know, being a wrestling fan, I I recognize the name DiBiase, and I was thinking of his father, actually, millionaire Ted DiBiase. uh, but this DiBiase is his son, and then I, of course, this leads me to wonder: Well, where did millionaire Ted get his millions from? Allegedly, but you know, the fact that money for TANF, for Poor people to feed themselves and their families was stolen to the tune of $94 million, stolen from the poor and given to literally rich people for their personal drug rehabilitation. And working class and poor people can't get that kind of support themselves is one level of just absolute debauchery and criminality. But then there is the fact that the Mississippi State Department of Human Resources actually fired a lawyer who is investigating this $94 million in misspent welfare funds? Now, these are the folks, again, as you pointed out, Basil, who are always talking about, you know, personal responsibility and, you know, we have to deal with the waste and fraud in these quote unquote entitlement programs. But when there's somebody who is actually investigating the waste and fraud in these programs that's actually being diverted to rich people, then we we don't want that investigated,
3: huh? Exactly, exactly. They I, they don't want it investigated. And, you know, like I mean one of the you know main reasons, you know, they because um yeah, the attorney Pigott was um, you know invest was, you know, asking filing subpoena, right, for the um investigation of the specifically the volleyball stadium at Southern Miss, the five million dollars going towards that. And, you know, like one of the things that, you know, subpoena will reveal is like, you know, communications between our former governor, um, who actually signed it, actually, uh, by the way, signed into law, um, the current, um, the current trigger law that um, outlaws abortion in Mississippi. But, yeah, the former governor, Phil Bryant, and, you know, like, you know, different people found, found this foundation, um, like Nancy New. So, you know, like, um so, you know, he was, yeah, he was taken off because he was investigating this, you know, as he says. And, you know, one of the main reasons is because of the, you know, like, uh, connections between, you know, the former governor and the current governor, Tate Reeves, and the foundation. Many of these board members um, have donated generously, very, very generously, to Tate Reeves' campaign. And, you know, all this cheesy campaign ads, and things like that, you know, these people, you know, basically, you know, built him up. So, you know, and technically, Tate Reeves is, you know, Brad, you know, Brad Pitt gets boss, right? So you see, I mean, you like, over here, you know, like in Mississippi, we call this, you know, the good old boy system, right? Where basically, you know, these wealthy, you know, politicians, these police officers, all these people, and you know, leadership. You know, say to each other, you know, I got you <laughs> and, you know, say to everybody else, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you can do something else. So, you know, this, this is a system we have in place here in Mississippi as part of a larger capitalist system, of course.
0: Yeah, definitely. And when you talk about that good old boy network that we're so familiar with in the South, Basil, uh, uh, that comes with a heaping helping of racist paternalism that I think is shot through uh, so much of this system in uh, Mississippi that sets up these programs that are supposedly supposed to help uh, poor and working people in one of the poorest parts of the country, mind you, but instead uh, steals from them. And there's a dark irony to that when you look at how this is a massive case of welfare fraud. And there there's this persistent stereotype of uh, the black so-called welfare queen, you know, black women who are supposedly, you know, stealing tax dollars uh, from the state or whatever as a way to uh, uh, basically justify the cutting of these social services. But it isn't poor black women or poor families that stole this ninety four million dollars from the people of Mississippi. It was these wealthy, mostly white men who were in, in charge or not only in charge of this, but were the beneficiaries of it. And so it points to not only a deep hypocrisy in all of this, but the fundamental racism in so much of how these systems play out and, uh, of course, feeding into this, you know, personal responsibility narrative and trying to frame you know, poverty as, uh, uh, you know, uh, a personal moral failure and things like that. And so it's just clear that uh, both the combined impacts of white supremacy and capitalist exploitation are really having a serious negative effect on the people of Mississippi, whose elected officials are the ones that are literally stealing food off their tables.
3: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, this this couldn't have happened. They they couldn't have taken advantage of this to the degree that they have without, you know, the very, you know, structure of temporary assistance for needy families, because temporary assistance for needy families, you know, has this work requirement. Um, And the main thing is it's supplied not through direct cash assistance. Um, That was changed in 1996 under Bill Clinton. Now, you know, it's provided through block grants to the states. Um, where the states have almost full freedom, you know, to decide how these funds are distributed. So if they wanted to put it through some, you know, conservative-led, um, you know, foundation, they totally can. They can do whatever, you know. And there's way more scrutiny on how the 5% of funds that go to families, how those, how, there's way more scrutiny on how those families you know, are spending their funds and how much those families are working or trying to find work um, or whatever, then on the actual states, they're actually distributing these funds. They almost get no scrutiny. And it, it's the racism, right? It's the racism, it's the classism, the sexism that is inherent um, in this system. It is the and inherent in, the, in this way of distributing funds. Um, that is so obvious and is laid bare by this whole scandal and shows we need a new welfare system um, here in Mississippi and all over in the United States. Absolutely.
0: Well, we thank you so much, Basil, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. we are move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc i'm your host sean blackman here with jackie lukeman and as always we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us And today we're talking about global politics and the threat of nuclear conflict. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Greg Mello, executive director of the Los Alamos Study Group in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And Greg, uh, here recently, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez warned that a nuclear annihilation may be just one miscalculation away. Now, he said this uh, during some comments he made at the opening of a uh, conference for countries that are signed up to the nuclear nonproliferation treaty saying, quote, humanity is just one misunderstanding, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation violation, adding, we have been extraordinarily lucky so far. And uh, I'm just sort of curious, uh, Greg, what do you think, not only about Gutierrez's comments here, but particularly given sort of the global political situation at this point? I mean, do you think that uh, there is some real substance to Gutierrez's warning here?
4: Well, yes, I do. Um, I think it's absolutely correct. And the the danger lies in that We don't see where the invisible watershed is that could lead us inexorably downward toward nuclear conflict. So one side needs to save face, and it just – they think they have the situation uh, calculated correctly. But as we learned in the Cuban Missile Crisis, that wasn't the case. We, We lucked out then. So he's absolutely right. There's, as you know, there's um, U.S. Uh, people on the ground in Ukraine. We are helping uh, Ukraine with targeting uh, with real time uh, battlefield intelligence, with training, financing, supplying, political support. In many, almost all in significant ways, we are directly at war with Russia. And it, Well, that's just a, that's unprecedented in my lifetime and frightening.
1: Yeah, it is frightening especially since we are now looking at with the visit by Nancy Pelosi yesterday and you know the realization that the same kind of planning for uh military support with and in Taiwan has been going on in the Biden administration in preparation for some kind of confrontation with China that looks pretty much exactly like what is going on in Ukraine. I mean, so how, how do you assess the uh, so-called smart people in Washington, particularly the uh, defense officials and the military bigwigs, how do you assess the way they are planning for uh, a warfare that somehow doesn't lead to a nuclear confrontation or that they think if it does lead to a nuclear confrontation somehow the united states can quote unquote win
4: right so i agree it is an absolutely parallel situation and their the intent to break russia on the rock of ukraine crumbling rock at this point Uh, and contain China are structurally very similar. They are right now completely overshadowing any arms control or disarmament, uh, even maintaining, let alone progressing. This seems to be arising both from a desperation of uh, people, the, the thinking people that you mentioned, recognizing the decline of U.S. power in the world and wanting to halt that decline uh, now while they still can and being willing to take desperate measures in order to do that. There's also some, I saw a comment from Jake Sullivan, which I can't quote accurately uh, without uh, going back to my computer, but he spoke spoke of the need to scare the American public about China. And so there's always a large domestic component to this, related to the midterms, but also related to uh, creating the political support for a long-term hybrid conflict with China to contain China and limit its power in Asia and by implication of the whole world. So, but, but it arises within this echo chamber in Washington, D.C., that is increasingly out of touch with what most people in the United States want. People don't actually want uh, brinkmanship uh, with nuclear weapon states or with a state like China that could, uh, in an instant, uh, invoke economic sanctions that would cripple the U.S. economy. People don't want that. But in D.C., there is an overestimation of U.S. power and a kind of uh, people's careers and their thinking are locked into uh, an idea of American exceptionalism um And as I said, a strong overestimation of the state of U.S. power in the world.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and I think you're correct, Greg, when you talk about this uh, this 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 disconnectedness, if you will, of uh, uh, elected officials here in the United States, because while I think, you know, because of the propaganda from corporate owned uh, media outlets and from the government, I mean, I do think that Russia and China have been well demonized in the minds of the American people. But that's quite a different thing than wanting to actively uh, uh, go to an open conflict with those countries, particularly with uh, uh, nuclear weapons. And I feel like we're hearing more and more from the rank and file person in the United States as it regards Ukraine, uh, complaining about all these billions and billions of dollars going to Ukraine. Meanwhile, uh, uh, housing and food and oil and gas prices are rising here in the U.S. while wages stagnate. And so to me, that points to sort of a, a real class dynamic, right, uh, uh, within this whole issue issue because uh, the Joe Bidens and the Nancy Pelosi's and, you know, even with the Republican leadership as well, these types of elements, they they won't they're not feeling the economic squeeze from uh, the actions and policies of the United States. But uh, uh, more and more people in this country are feeling that. And I feel like this is a big contributor to the deteriorating social political situation that we're seeing in the U.S., right? Right now uh, yes
4: absolutely <clears throat> and I couldn't agree more uh, there was a recent poll uh, uh, by CNN and its contractor um, which you can find easily on the web that makes your points uh, with real data so at this point um, this was a poll Uh, Now, I think the questioning was done maybe a month ago or three weeks ago that a majority of Americans, I hate that term, but U.S. citizens oppose Biden's policies in Ukraine. And how it splits between groups is that it splits along class lines, just exactly as you say. Uh, it's It's a pretty interesting poll in that regard. It also spits along party lines, of course, um, where uh, Republicans, which uh, when I was growing up were, uh, I I thought, were the more warlike party, uh, were more skeptical that the United States should be so heavily involved in this conflict in Ukraine, whereas Democrats were far more supportive. But educated people were supportive of the war, college graduates, and Uh, This leads us in uh, other directions of, you know, this was true in Nazi Germany, too, that the more educated people became better Nazis. And it was, uh, it was really easy to get those, uh, they were used to, you know, coloring within the boxes. And people living out in rural areas, people making a living more by their wits, more by the gig economy, are a little more skeptical, and they don't have the job pressures. The the media people we know are really on a tight leash.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, it seems like we are so far away from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty that was actually introduced in 1968 after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, And do you think that the way that we are not disposed or predisposed to pay any attention to history older than four years ago, like literally the last election in this country. Do you think that owes to uh, so many people who, as you just pointed out, should quite literally know better, are educated on the dangers or or should be more educated on the dangers of nuclear weapons and the literal no-win situation that a nuclear confrontation presents for all of humanity, do you think the fact that, you know, politically, we just don't pay attention to history past four years ago to recognize the importance of continuing to commit to that 1968 non-proliferation treaty and to continue to push for a reduction in nuclear arms in general?
4: Absolutely. I, I would agree with you completely. We've got something going on in our country where people, we've we've had some public meetings and discussions of this, and we're hearing from a number, a lot of diverse group of people. And we see a kind of new malleability in the public where they are moving from one anxiety object to another, uh, where it's COVID, it's It's Supreme Court decisions that they don't like, one after another. But it's not just they don't like them; it it becomes a state of panic, which is internalized in people, and this kind of generalized anxiety that moves so fluidly from one thing to another is swamping people's ability to think and reflect and apply the history which they know in their hearts uh these are people who were uh who understood this we know them people many of uh, the people we're talking to they they know the history very well but they've been knocked off balance by everything that's been happening and kept off
0: balance yeah definitely i mean i was just thinking about um the comment you made earlier, Greg, when you were talking about how at one time the Republicans seemed more warlike. And I feel like I've been hearing this more and more, uh, particularly from folks of a certain generation who talked about a time in the United States where there were hawks and doves. But in 2022, uh, all the doves uh, seem to be gone. And the only thing that's left um, is hawks, which uh, uh, is putting not only the U.S., but I think much of global humanity at risk. And of course, we're having this... Uh, Uh, Conversation, uh, Greg, uh, just a couple of days before the uh, 77th anniversary of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. Of course, these are uh, atomic bombs that were dropped uh, on Japan in 1945 that, you know, not only killed uh, and, and maimed hundreds of thousands of people, but, you know, the after effects of that nuclear attack still being felt to this day. So, how are you sort of viewing this upcoming anniversary, you know, within the context of? the nuclear threat uh, uh, as it stands today.
4: That's a really good question. Um uh we <laughs> First I want to say that we have just heard from the former director of the Hiroshima Peace Museum uh, last night <clears throat> that for the first time in 40 years Russia uh Russian representatives have been disinvited from <clears throat> the anniversary uh, uh commemorations there in Hiroshima. Um and uh, the, at the, again, at the level of the people of Hiroshima, they understand that even if you don't, you don't like everything about your so-called adversary, you have to talk to them. And they, most of the people at the common person level over there, according to him, yeah. and he knows that town, want, they don't want Russia to be disinvited, but the order come, came down from on high. So now the Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, commemorations in Japan are just now part of this new demonization of Russia, um, or at least that's an element. But going back to there's a different. I think it's important to look at the events of 1945 in the with the light of what what we're in today. Uh, General Groves, who was in charge of the Manhattan Project testified at Oppenheimer's trial that—this is close to a quote, not um, exactly—from two weeks after the time that he took over the Manhattan Project, he organized the project on the basis of Russia being the real enemy. So, uh, yes, uh, so Germany uh, was— off the target list ra- relatively early for a couple of reasons. Uh, the war was over earlier. The, uh, project Alsos discovered there wasn't a bomb project over there, and there was always the risk that that Germany's atomic scientists could, if there was a dud, they would get the bomb and then they could uh, use it. Uh, they could reverse engineer it. <coughs> but there was the rush at the end of the war was to complete the bomb before the war ended by other means. So there was a kind of a, uh, among the leadership, there was a need to use the bomb in the war, in part for career purposes, but in part, um, of course people wanted to end the war quickly. That that was part of it, although I don't think the bombing had anything to do with the end of the war. Russia's entry uh, into the war was far more uh, consequential um, as even reflected in the headlines of the time. But the, the, within weeks after the bombing of Nagasaki, weeks uh, after the surrender of Japan, uh, the United States produced its first targeting plan against Russia. Uh, the following year, I think it was in June. Um, Operation Pincher was the first nuclear war plan against Russia. So there was a whole mm, revolution, you might say, in the Air Force that that what they called air atomic war was going to be the new organizing principle for the U.S. Air Force. This anti-Russian sentiment. Was not just uh, with General Groves, but was uh, a major feature in the U.S. Uh, military and industrial uh, civilian elite. Not, uh, not by any means, unanimous, but it was. Uh, there were large factions of the U.S. leadership class that understood that Stalin's Russia was an enduring enemy uh, to everything they stood for. So the I think it's really important to uh, shine the light of U.S.-Russian relations on what exactly happened in that time uh, before the end of the war in 1945, and then in those first years— um, uh, just after the war, here at Los Alamos Lab, Los Alamos, uh, the Manhattan Project, built a, a big uh, processing plant for plutonium to make nuclear weapons. They, were, they started it in the late winter of forty five, and it wasn't ready until October 1945. That plant was built to make more nuclear bombs. Um, and it was a physical embodiment of what General Grove said about organizing the project uh, with uh, Russia as a long-term enemy.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Greg, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: And today we're talking about the human rights situation inside occupied Western Sahara. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Maju Maliha, head of external relations for CODESA, the collective of Sahrawi human rights defenders in Western Sahara. Maju, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Majub, I know that you all at CODESA recently published a report about the realities of human rights violations and war crimes by Morocco occupation forces in the occupied Western Sahara. And I was hoping you could help us understand what does the uh, human rights situation look like inside of Western Sahara right now? And what have we been seeing from these uh, Moroccan occupation forces?
5: Yeah, indeed Sean, as you can see from the reports that can be found online, um, it is reflecting the gravity and scale of the violations and crimes committed by the Moroccan occupation forces against Sahrawi civilians. Uh, In light of the failure of the United Nations to complete the decolonization process in Western Sahara and the failure of the UN Security Council to bear its responsibilities, Notably, in activating the International Committee of the Red Cross, ensuring that the United Nations missions for the organization of the referendum in Western Sahara I Minurso mean, has a human rights mandate, which is the only mission in the world without such a mandate. We see that. Uh, positions from from uh, state leaders uh, such as uh, uh, Trump previously and the Spanish leader uh, uh, recently that gave a legal position on Western Sahara, supporting the illegal claims of of Morocco over Western Sahara, which is considered as per the UN Charter, as per the. The UN resolution as a non-self-governing territory awaiting decolonization. Uh, this, uh, uh, this, positions from such leaders have gave the green light to the Moroccan occupying forces, or occupation forces, to commit more crimes against humanity and more human rights violations against the Sahrawi civilians. So, from this report, we try to reflect a little bit of what's going on in Western Sahara. We cannot, of course, cover all the cases uh, in Western Sahara because we operate under the occupation, under the Moroccan occupation, and we have uh, restrictions accessing to victims and following up the, 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 the human rights violation, Beside, of course, the lack of resources to, to cover uh, uh, all the human rights violations in Western Sahara. But at least... This report can give us an idea with the minimum documented uh, information and cases and and, and have a, 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 a better understanding on what is really Morocco doing in Western Sahara, which is uh, under a blockade, media blockade, and a siege imposed by the Moroccan military occupation. No NGOs international NGOs, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and all the international NGOs have no access to the territory. So while these NGOs cannot report the human rights situation in Western Sahara, we as CODESA, the Collective Sahara Human Rights Defenders in Western Sahara, uh, a group of volunteers, Sahrawi activists, human rights defenders, who try to close that gap and provide some data to the international community to understand uh, the the crimes ongoing in Western Sahara.
0: Yeah, and I definitely want to get deeper into um, <clears throat> the character of these abuses, Majoub. but just to take a quick step back for people who may not be aware of uh, just, well, frankly, they may not be aware of the Western Sahara in general and what we mean when we talk about um, Moroccan occupation forces and things like that. And so if you could sort of uh, talk just a bit about kind of the history and context of how the Western Sahara, as we know it, it came to be and uh, uh, how is it that, you know, it fell into the hands, if you will, of Morocco?
5: Yeah, well, Western Sahara is located in the Northwest Africa. Its borders from the north is Morocco, from the east, Algeria, from the south, Mauritania, and from the east, the Atlantic Ocean and the Canary Island, the Spanish islands. Uh, It was a Spanish colony from 1889 up to 1976. Uh, when uh, Spain decided to illegally withdraw from the territory without completing the decolonization process, without uh, implementing the, the self-determination of Western Sahara, they all of a sudden withdrew from the territory, allowing Morocco and Mauritania, the two neighboring countries, to invade Western Sahara and divide it in two parts. The northern part was occupied by Morocco, the southern part, was occupied by Mauritania for a while. Back before that, in seventy-three, we, the Sahrawi people, had established the Sahrawi Liberation Front, which is known as the Polisario Front. And we started our struggle against the Spanish colony or Spanish colonial regime And later on, when Morocco and Mauritania divided this territory, we started our resistance against both invaders. Mauritania, in 1979, decided to withdraw its claims over Western Sahara and recognized the Sahrawi Republic, which was declared in 27 February 1976, one day after the Spanish withdrawal. Uh, Morocco kept... Uh, uh, claiming its sovereignty over in Western Sahara, they invaded the part uh, uh, that was occupied by Mauritania, and there was a 16 years long war up to 1991 between the Sahrawis and the Moroccan military occupation. In 1991, the UN, led by the United States, and major countries brokered a ceasefire agreement between the Polisario Front and Morocco. And that ceasefire agreement was basically agreed in order to organize a referendum in Western Sahara that provided the Sahrawi people with its right to self determination, where they can freely decide whether to be independent or to be part of the new uh, uh, invaders. That referendum, for that referendum, the UN have created a special mission which called the MINORSO, the Mission of the United Nations for the Organization of a Referendum in Western Sahara, was created back then. Up to now, 31 years later, that referendum never took place. Morocco was always blocking it and preventing it from happening, because they know that the Sahrawi people, once allowed to freely choose, they will opt for independence. And that is something that Morocco couldn't swallow. So that's why we ended up in a political process that took 30 years, plus 30 years, without achieving any significant results. The new thing is that we have since since Trump's proclamation issued in November, uh, in November 2020, recognizing Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara in contradiction with the international law, in violation of the UN Charter and the fundamental principles that founded the US itself, the right to self-determination. After that, there was a resumption of war when Morocco... Took it as a green light to invade extra territories from the liberated parts. So, to have an explanation about Western Sahara as well, it is divided in two parts the east and west of the Berm. The Berm is a separation wall filled with millions of landmines land that separate the territory and the people of Western Sahara into two parts. And there is a tiny line that the UN has created. That should be respected, and no one can go beyond in both directions. Morocco decided to breach that and annex extra territory beyond the wall on the borders of Western Sahara with Mauritania. And that was considered, which is in fact a violation and a breach of the ceasefire agreement. That was actually a reason to declare it over. And the Polisario Front had no choice but to declare resumption of. Of, of armed resistance against the Moroccan occupation. Now we have a war ongoing between the parties, and Morocco, of course, is uh, committing crimes more and more in, in the occupied territories.
1: Yeah, and it is the uh, violation of that ceasefire in 2020 that Morocco uh, committed that led to uh, the crimes that uh, are outlined in this report that Mo- Morocco has been committing against the sea uh, against the Sahrawi people. So, you know, Majub, can you give us just an overview of the kinds of uh, actions that Morocco has committed against the Sahrawi people that needs to be raised to the international community that they've ignored all this time?
5: Yeah, indeed. So we have really different, different types of, of 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 crimes and violations committed by Morocco in Western Sahara. It starts from the tiny, minor rights, the freedom of expression, freedom, right, to assembly, uh, and the basic human rights, and goes up to international crimes like uh, territorial integrity, the violation of the national unity of the Sahrawi people. We see landmines uh, which are prohibited internationally. But in the same time, on daily basis, we see arbitrary detention against whoever dare to raise voice and support or demand the rights of determination. We see houses, of, of, of families, entire families put under house arrest. In the case of Khaya family, for instance, in Bujdur, that, that are still under house arrest for almost two years. And on daily basis, they keep attacking them with, with stones. They even try to bring down their house so that, uh, as an example, we have seen killings outside the law or exterminations conducted by the Moroccan military. We see uh, uh, violations of the right to physical integrity, which have in the la- in this report we have noted or documented two hundred sixty-four cases, uh, kidnappings uh, and arbitrary detentions, one twenty-one cases. Uh, uh, the home, uh, as I said, uh, uh, a home arrest or a home siege uh, 139 cases. Uh, the the violation of the right to freedom of expression and assembly 205 cases. Uh, restriction of freedom of movement. We have documented 195 cases in in in, in one and a half year time frame. So we see different different. Uh, uh, uh violations that we we could but this is just the minimum that we could document and confirm uh we, we have seen cases of rape uh, at least two have been documented since the since the war have been have been resumed uh this type of uh, the, the, we are not talking yet about the discrimination ongoing and exclusion from from accessing the natural resources, exclusion from jobs, uh, the the imposed or forced allegiance imposed on Sahrawis. If you want to feed your family, you should swear allegiance to the Moroccan occupation. Um, Many, many types of of human rights abuses are ongoing and taking place in in Western Sahara on a daily basis while the world as having no idea what's going and not only that having no intentions to know and disclose the reality of the situation in Western Sahara
0: definitely well we thank you so much Majub for joining us today we're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington D.C. we'll be right back so please stay with us
2: By Any Means Necessary
0: any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc i'm your host sean blackman here with jackie lukeman and as always we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us we are back, top of the hour. It is Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. <clears throat> anything at all relevant happening on this earth, we want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us.
1: That's right, Sean. i got to hurry up and get back in the studio so I can come to your aid in these moments of distress. <laughs> but there are other ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com radio Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave, that's M A V E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 PM Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B A M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 320 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202, 521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you.
0: We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Esther Rivera, an artist, author, independent journalist and the host and producer of On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, which you can listen to both as a podcast and on Pacifica Radio. Esther, thanks so much for joining us. Always happy to join you, Sean and Jackie. And we're always happy to have you, Esther. And uh, a little earlier this week, uh, the Senate approved a bill that will create a new entitlement program specifically to treat veterans who may have been exposed to toxic burn pits, these pits that they use to burn trash on U.S. military bases. Uh, And reportedly, this would be the biggest expansion of veterans health benefits since the Agent Orange Act of 1991. This increased uh, uh, healthcare access to veterans of the Vietnam War who have been exposed to Agent Orange, which, of course, uh, continues uh, to have an impact on generations of uh, Laotians, Cambodians, and Vietnamese. And uh, I'm sort of wondering what you uh, make of this, uh, uh, Esther, in a number of ways. I mean, I can't help but think about the fact that, I mean, the U.S. uh, military is one of, if not the greatest polluter on the Earth, and, and I have to wonder how much of a factor these burn pits were sort of in that. But uh, just wondering your top line thoughts on this piece.
6: Well, I think that the drama behind passage of the bill was really interesting, and really just showed how disgraceful the political machinery uh, is in Washington D.C. How it is really not there to serve the people. The the population that elects these people in Congress, in this case in the Senate, just really disgraceful that it had to come to this type of uh, political gamesmanship, uh, the Republicans withdrawing their support for this legislation, uh, because the Democrats had managed to piece together possibly a deal to pass some of, some of the few environmental and tax elements of what was built back better. And it's a ghost of its former self, right? But they reached a deal with Joe Manchin, which I think we'll talk about later. But still, they managed to preserve some elements of climate legislation uh, to finally let, I think, Medicaid or Medicare negotiate drug prices so that, uh, seniors especially aren't held hostage to the uh, the whims of big pharma, and and people aren't paying exorbitant prices for something like insulin, which is like a fraction of the cost in Canada. Well, anyway, finally, you know, after months of delay, Manchin, Joe Manchin, the senator of West Virginia, finally agreed to let some of these uh, provisions Go through in a in a deal between he and the Senate leader Schumer, and in almost in reaction to that, because they were definitely uh, determined to make sure the Democrats had no wins, the Republicans withdrew their support for this bill to aid veterans, also saying that they didn't want to create this new entitlement. What would the cost be? Um, you know democrats are just trying to create a new slush fund all these sort of sorts of complaints about budgeting and and accountability that they obviously never show for the overall uh, military budget which they just want to rubber rubber stamp and you know basically throw money down a rat hole you know trillions of dollars in afghanistan iraq this gravy train for the military industrial congressional complex so after they were, Republicans were kind of disgraced for a few days, uh, John Stewart uh, holding press conference, The uh, comedian John Stewart holding press conferences, literally cursing out the Republicans, showing them for the hypocrisy that they, for the hypocrites they are, and, you know, the Democrats as well, not taking them off the hook. So finally, this legislation was passed on, like, the second or third try this week. And, you know, just the fact that, uh, you know, corporate media is calling it a new entitlement program, it sounds just so, uh, you know, we know what those words mean. We know that, like earlier you were talking about the phrase welfare queen, it's putting veterans, people who have to sacrifice, and, you know, I'm no fan of the military, the imperialist, you know, army. But I'm saying that, you know, the right. The Republicans, the far right, they always want to tout the military veterans as part of their base, part of their constituency, uh, people who are willing to fight for the empire. And even in this case, uh, these veterans were allowed to be a political football so that they could hopefully, uh, you know, teach the Democrats a lesson, keep the Democrats from getting a win, per se. Uh, and, And so that's where we are now.
1: Yeah, and, and I think it, it's it's kind of ironic that the only way those other things that you mentioned, the prescription drug prices and, and the other things that were parts of the Build Back Better uh, uh, Act that would have been enacted if the, if that was able to be pushed through by itself, that we would have gotten then, we got some of those things, or at least I guess they've agreed to some of those things because – they could, you know, they made this deal for veterans. And I think it's not lost on me that the only way those provisions for the rest of us was given any kind of consideration was if we made a deal to do something for veterans. And I think that is just I, I that's just wild to me on so many levels that. First of all, this government is always creating new wars to throw people into, but then it never wants to take care of the people that it throws people uh, into the cannon fodder, you know, into the cannon o- over when they come back, you know, so so that is an issue. And then the fact that, you know, these people that we allegedly vote for to represent our interests get on Capitol Hill and then refuse to do anything for us uh, unless it's some kind of back. Uh, room deal that waters down our needs. And I think this is also the case with the fact that Manchin made this deal, because the only reason he really did make this deal, Esther, seems to be that he got assurances from Democratic leaders to go ahead and complete the Mountain Valley Pipeline, the 304-mile gas pipeline in West Virginia, don't need another gas pipeline anywhere in the world, certainly not in this country. But that seems to be the thing that pushed Joe Manchin to agreeing to uh, this legislation at all. And I mean, still, we get sold out to big oil and and fossil fuel companies. See, I want to be clear that that is really, that's really the deal that
6: solidified this this passage of a piece of what was built Back Better. The veterans legislation was really something separate. And the Republicans were just angry that even this little piece of bill was uh, that that a deal was struck on it. And so uh, on this whole totally separate legislation, they wanted to try to hold it up. But then they were just embarrassed and shamed into voting for it and realizing that it wasn't a time uh, in their own interest to pay. To play politics, but you're right. The we find out after the, you know the, you know I saw one headline that said Biden's back, you know, because he's been pillorying, you know, even in his own liberal media, uh, for his sinking poll numbers, his inability to to pass this really important legislation to to uh, declare an executive action on health because of the Supreme Court's uh, reactionary uh, decision on jobs to declare a climate emergency with uh, forests in California burning, people dying in Kentucky with these massive floods this year, and just all types of climate emergencies around us. So he's being pushed by the people who elected him reluctantly to fulfill just the basics of his promises that he made to get into office and that he set out to pass in this massive build back better, which was, you know, eventually just whittled away to be a former skeleton of itself. Right. So that's, that was really the compromise. And so, so just getting back to the whole burn pit issue, you know, I just think that we need to stop and think about this really, you know, what are these burn pits, you know, what, um, why is the U.S. military, in addition to being the biggest polluter on the planet, uh, why did they set up a system in Iraq and Afghanistan in particular to burn so much uh, toxic uh, uh, garbage, including plastic, styrofoam, uh, somebody, someone that even saw like a, a military vehicle, vehicle that they were discarding down in the burn pit. So you're talking about benzene, dioxins some of the same chemicals that made up Agent, Agent Orange, which uh, was a chemical weapon uh, used. You know, people talk about chemical weapons being used by other countries, but the United States is the one that used chemical weapons like Agent Orange or the the other defoliants ex- in, in, in Vietnam and these other uh, chemical weapons. Uh, even in Iraq, you know, there was Claims of white phosphorus and other types of weapons used in Fallujah, where there are still birth defects, massive, horrible birth defects for the local population. And so when you think about just the criminality, really, uh, of for this long, burn pit victims, veterans not being compensated for what were obvious uh, exposure issues to these burn pits, it's criminal with a trillion plus. Uh, you know, what one hundred trillion? What is it? One trillion, <laughs> one trillion into the military every year. When you count in all the various Department of Energy budgets and stuff, we're way over a trillion. And why? Uh, I think I think Bernie Sanders said something this week. Like, why are you going to fund all these wars and not want to take care of veterans? Right. So they were just shamed into this.
0: Yeah, and you know, I say this all the time. And it's true that, you know, when you critique uh, imperialism or you criticize the U.S. and its never ending war machine, you know, generally in in the United States, you're accused of like, quote, not supporting the troops. You know, uh, the, the 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 military is something that is valorized and lionized in this country and they're seen or at least, you know, uh, they're portrayed as like these uh, crusading heroes for democracy across the world. But if you're so concerned about the troops, then Why is it that you subject them to like inhaling toxic fumes with these burn pits? And why are they? And it's just so wild to me. We're talking about like the largest and most sophisticated military apparatus on planet Earth. And the way you all get uh, rid of trash is to throw it in a hole and burn it. That just makes that just that, that just makes no sense. And so I just think it says a lot about how this government really sees the troops and, and the kind of, uh, uh, you know, how they really feel about their quality of life and, and things like this throughout different generations. And you mentioned a moment ago, Esther, about um, how, you know, uh, the Biden administration felt pressure to try to, you know, fulfill at least one of the many promises uh, among the many broken ones that uh, the public has been subject to from the time he was uh, elected. And see, I I just feel like this is another example of the Democrats making things hard for them from an electoral standpoint uh, as we head towards the uh, 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 midterms here in the United States. With the uh, Trumpist wing of the Republican Party, you know, waiting in the wings to to really make a play for power, and I, you know, I feel like Biden is doing things, in these little, uh, you know. Uh, 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 Piddling sort of things to try To uh, turn things around To do something to salvage his um, uh, Approval numbers But I just don't think that these things will work I'm thinking specifically of you know That little uh, whatever he called it That platform he had that supposedly Was going to address um, abortion Rights I mean it was it was framed And um, advertised like It was really going to be something substantive But it was just you know task force And you know just stuff That wasn't really uh, going to address the problem critically at all. And then you have the recent uh, execution of uh, a terrorist leader, uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri. I mean, you know, certainly I'm not shedding any tears for someone like al-Zawahiri, but I mean, if Biden thinks that this is going to, you know, boost uh, uh, and give him that uh, boost of support that he needs, then I just don't quite see that happening. And I feel like this is sort of part and parcel of the uh, uh, political deterioration that's happening in the United States where, you know, all we seem to be able to hear is, you know, what these politicians can't do, even though they got into office telling us all the things that they were going to do. And I think particularly with with Democrats, this has been a long running um, strategy of theirs. I mean, at a certain point, I don't even know if it's strategy anymore so much as it is a habit uh, in terms of getting into office and basically uh, cooling their heels and resting their laurels on the face- that, well, I'm not the Republican, so I'm the better choice, even if I don't do anything for you. And so as such, Esther, uh, when we continue to see um, conditions worsen here in the U.S., I think the prospect for, you know, an independent force outside of the political mainstream, I think is going to be really crucial if we're going to actually address so many of these issues.
6: Well, absolutely. And, you know, every organizer, you know, on the true left, who is trying to address some of these many issues not addressed by the Democrats and Biden. You know, we know this and we know that it is just so important to get the attention and the support of the people, as opposed to continuing to try to rely on responses from these politicians here in D.C. You know, know, something you said reminded me that when And Biden announced the passage of what was Build Back Better or some of the aspects of it. He called it the Inflation Reduction Act. And it just made me realize how much he's beholden to, almost captured by these right-wing talking points. Because if he stood before the American people and explained to them that inflation is caused by corporations raising prices, period. It's not because people are paid more money. It's not because... People got a little bit of relief during the pandemic, and and so many people were able to, to basically feed their families. The child uh, for, uh, tax credit, short-lived as it was, raised millions of children out of poverty temporarily who have been sunk back down into poverty. If he just stood before the American people and told the truth about the 1% these CEOs, oligarchs, these corporate leaders, so- so-called leaders, raising the prices of oil, big oil um, earning massive um, millions in, in profits, if not billions, right? And, and you know, each quarter is going up and up and up. And explain that that is why we have inflation. Then, you know, maybe people could get behind him. Maybe they could see that maybe he was trying to stick up for the masses of working people in this country. But to get up and, you know, tout this legislation, all the while knowing that, you know, you're giving these, you know, presenting these climate solutions at the same time that in order to get it passed, you're willing to give Joe Manchin the Mountain Valley Pipeline, this massive gas fracking pipeline, you know, uh, this this uh, pipeline to carry fracked natural gas. Um, and that environmentalists have been, you know, fighting for, and I'm going to say decades, or they've been fighting on so many levels uh, to, to, as a danger to clean water, clean air, uh, to despoil the natural life as a danger to wildlife, as a just danger to humanity if we're trying to cut back on fossil fuels. And so it's, it's by doing uh, presenting this one uh, piece of legislation that has all these loopholes for fossil fuels, anyway, knowing that you're you're trying to uh, appease Manchin and give him his way and allow this this massive pipeline, it's just ridiculous. He he is you know alienating one of the few uh, uh, blocks of voters, the environmentalists, who are really sticking with him because they don't want to go back to the years of Trump and. And before, where Republicans were just approving every pipeline they could name or get their hands on and fracking and doing all these other things, he's he's proving himself to be hardly any better.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to by any means necessary on radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 11320 That's 2, zero- two-, five- two- 1320 Myself and Jackie Mon continue to be joined by Esther Averum. And Esther, speaking of uh, the climate and the the, um, build back better plan, uh, Senator Joe Manchin, of course, of West Virginia has actually gotten a promise from uh, Democrats and the White House to complete the Mountain Valley pipeline. Now, this is a three hundred and four mile gas pipeline in West Virginia that reportedly would carry natural gas from the Marcellus shell fields in West Virginia across about a thousand streams and wetlands ending up ultimately in Virginia. And I really have to laugh at this. Like, I I mean, Joe Manchin really, I feel like he's really hustled the Democrats here. And and, and I definitely want to know what you um, think about this, Esther. And what I mean is, of course, is as you noted earlier, it was Manchin who was a big part of whittling down the Build Back Better plan uh, uh, and then only to still not support it. And we reported earlier this week that uh, he came to some kind of deal with Schumer. I, I believe the amount was, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, like a climate uh, package and some other things uh, that was included in there, uh, I believe, worth about $739 billion, which I feel like is still uh, pretty well shy of the $2 trillion that uh, uh, the Build Back Better would have covered. And, you know, not to mention that, <laughs> Even after having talks with Joe Biden himself, Manchin then went on Fox News to say that he would not uh, support it. And so uh, the Democrats at that time, uh, they didn't get what they want. Certainly the people of the United States didn't get the benefit from what would have been a pretty ambitious piece of legislation, I think. But uh, Joe Manchin gets his pipeline. So I, I just feel like this is what happens when we continue to see the Democratic Party, um, capitulate to its right wing, to the detriment of the people that it considers this base, which I think also contributes to uh, what we were discussing, which is just what appears to be a circling of the drain of the Democratic Party in general.
6: It's amazing to me. It's it's like you're bewildered, befuddled (laughs) by the Democrats' inability to... Take what is really their strength, and which is the majority of the people in the country supporting what was, you know, for the Democrats pretty forward looking legislation, you know, last year and have it a little away by this millionaire uh, coal baron from West Virginia uh, who also held up, you know, uh, voting rights. And, and, so many other things, you know, the minimum wage increase. So he, along with Kirsten Cinema and other uh, uh, right-wing Democrats and Republicans. So there is, uh, you know, as they look toward the midterms, you know, their only hope is the outrage of so many suburban women, um, along with, you know, other organized, you know, women's groups who are outraged over the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs and the uh, probability, uh, well, actually the stated promise of people like uh, Senator, um, you know, some of these Republicans running or, you know, who are in high positions of saying that if they get back in power, or get a majority, they're going to go for a national ban on abortion. So you have all this type of you know movement from the Supreme Court and all this talk from these these far right extremists Republicans, and that is going to drive that's driving a lot of women to the polls just like they went to the polls in Kansas it is it is it that defeated the uh, attempt to uh, outlaw abortion in that state uh, If it wasn't for that. Uh, they have nothing really, they don't have much to show for themselves. And now, and they have even the so-called progressive wing of the Democratic Party, they're voting for all this funding to, you know, pour down the drain in Ukraine, uh, you know, backing uh, what is not a democratic country, uh, where people are, you know, experiencing massive human rights violations. So I know that's a whole different story. But still, the Democrats are just time and time again not showing people that they offer an alternative. You know, how many times can you run on the idea that, yeah, we're not great, but they're worse? You know, in the meantime, we're facing, you know, multiple crises, but most importantly, the climate crisis. And, you know, those of us with children, people with grandchildren, we don't know what kind of life that. They're going to live, and not to mention young people themselves. I mean, they are caring so much about, well, what do I, do I have a future? Well, you know what do I have to live for? I' say the audio of young people out rallying at the Supreme Court, you know before these you know tepid deals were made. and still, they were just they were talking about the Supreme Court's decision, not in Dobbs, um, not just in Dobbs, but their decision around. You know, like the the federal government doesn't have the right to to make regulations to curb emissions. <laughs> so, you know, what kind of government is this? You know, it's not serving the people. It's not serving what the people want
1: and what the people need. And I'm, you know, I'm glad you raised the issue of the uh, vote in Can- uh, Kansas against uh, the overturning or or uh, yeah, overturning. Uh, protecting women's uh, reproductive rights that's in the Constitution of the state of Kansas. And the GOP tried really, really hard to stack the deck in their favor. You know, they did a whole lot of what they always do, a whole lot of voter suppression and, uh, you know, wordsmithing that confused the issue on uh, supposed information that was sent out about the ballots. But people in Kansas were very clear Uh, when they went to the polls, that they did not want their constitution changed. They did not want to deny women uh, the right to reproductive health, bodily autonomy, and privacy rights. Uh, And they were not in support of that. And a whole lot of Republicans actually voted against this measure, which I think is noteworthy. So in thinking about that, um, you know, that effort in Kansas I'm wondering what the fight back is going to look like in West Virginia in regard to this Mountain Valley pipeline. Of course, you know, Esther, there has been opposition to it, as you said, for years and decades. But now that the Democratic Party has put their rubber rubber stamp on the pipeline being completed, I mean, do, do you think the fight back is going to have to include like some kind of of ballot initiative, some type of electoral something up to and including a serious campaign to vote Joe Manchin out of office? I mean, do you think people in West Virginia are finally going to get to that point where it's like, you know what, we really need to not sleep on this dude anymore and and just make him unemployed?
6: Wow. That would be, wouldn't that be something that would be a story to report here on (laughs) by any means necessary. Right now, I do not keep up with the internal, you know, on the ground situation in West Virginia. I do know, I follow the poor people's campaign who spent a lot of time in West Virginia this year and last year, you know, a bird dogging mansion. Yeah around his positions, around Build Back Better. And there's a lot of support in West Virginia to find new leadership, to fund new leadership. And, you know, the oligarchs, the other coal barons like himself, they pour lots of money into his campaign and to uh, support him uh, keeping that office. But there is a grassroots movement to unseat him and like you said, to also uh, counter this so-called deal around the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Now, th- it's interesting in that so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which includes uh, so many you know benefits for the environment, you know, like tax credits for appliances, for cars, for, you know, fuel-efficient electric cars, uh, things like that. There, there are some other important uh, uh, benefits for the so, the environmental justice movement—a fund being created to really aid so many communities that have been basically sacrifice zones in 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 so many ways uh, for these massive fossil fuel projects. But it also uh, creates a different type of infrastructure uh, regulation uh, process, so that. It might be easier to approve fossil fuel projects, and I believe that it shifts the uh, the court that will actually hear a lot of these cases uh, from where from uh, it, it switch, excuse me switches them to the D.C. Circuit jurid- jurisdiction away from another court jurisdiction where environmentalists have had more success and challenging on on you know state you know federal rules and regulations you know the air quality, the water quality, the uh, impact on wildlife that these pipeline projects would have. So it's kind of like giving and taking away at the same time. And I just I just know that people are lining up to continue to fight this pipeline regardless of what the uh, this deal uh, says. And uh, the supposedly the Democrats are going to try to t- tuck it into a piece of legislation that has to pass, like a budget or something, so that it goes through. And, you know, we're going to have another situation like we had, you know, around the other pipeline protests where uh, communities uh, in harm's way that stand to lose their their right to clean air and clean water and just, you know, clean soil, you know, just the enjoyment of, you know, the pristine wilderness, even. That's a right, too, right? Uh, I'm sure that people are going to be lining up to fight this.
0: Yeah, and, you know, sometimes I think people get the impression That, uh, you know, the people since Joe Manchin has been in office for so long that he must, you know, uh, enjoy this high level of popularity amongst the people of West Virginia and and to excuse me. To your point, Esther, I mean, you know, just in uh, conversations I've had with West Virginia organizers, that just does not seem to be the case. I mean, they're very clear that uh, Manchin is, as you described him, a cold baron um, whose policies and <clears throat> actions um, while he's been in office has been detrimental to them. And I think that's evident in the uh, ongoing issues of poverty and other social and economic issues that continue to plague the poor and working people of the the uh uh of the state. Meanwhile, he gets to you know chill on yachts and and stuff like that. And I want to switch gears a little bit here, uh, uh, Esther. Although I think this is uh, relevant to what we're discussing. To, to uh, continue to uh, look at what's happening in terms of Nancy Pelosi and this uh, visit to Taiwan. I mean, despite all warnings, as we've been pointing out, she did conduct this trip. Uh, uh, China, I think, could not have been clearer about uh, why this should not be done they've given you know some relevant history and context around the one China policy and have correctly pointed out about how the u.s continues to violate the one China policy both in letter and spirit while claiming that it's doing something else I mean certainly that's what Pelosi's done talking about she's there to like celebrate Taiwanese democracy or whatever and good governance and you know uh, uh, Joe Biden talking out of both sides of his mouth about the whole issue. So so how are you sort of seeing this when we sort of consider the international situation and the possible uh, volatile uh, potentialities that could come from this? Now, of course, we we don't know what will happen as a result of this. We don't quite know uh, how China will respond. But even still, uh, uh, this was just a very ill-advised thing for Pelosi to do at the very least. I mean, to be honest, it was also like bullheaded and, and uh, foolhardy and all other sorts of things. And I'm only using these words because we can't curse on the radio. But even with that, uh, Esther, just wondering how you're considering Pelosi's uh, piece at this point. Well,
6: you know, I was somewhat disgusted. I was listening to Democracy Now! this morning and... I think there was someone from the Quincy Institute uh, for Statecraft or something, and then also uh, a journalist. I think a self-described journalist from Taiwan. And I was disgusted because there was all this, There, there was the, the statement made that both the U.S. and China have basically taken steps to undermine the Shanghai Accord. Am I saying that right? The Accords you know, signs, you know, back in the 70s uh, that established the the one-China rule, that the U.S. agreed that there is just one China, that Taiwan is a part of China. And it was very important because after the Chinese Revolution, all of the the people who had been defeated, uh, who were supported by the U.S., fled to Taiwan and set up this... uh, uh, government it was uh, basically a basically a authoritarian dictatorship uh, a brutal regime uh, still run by the Chiang Kai-shek and his supporters initially and and actually for so long uh, the UN uh, egged on by the US refused to recognize the people's republic of china and kept on recognizing taiwan this little small island off the coast of the mainland as the real China. And so this accord in the 70s was really important to end that those decades of, of not recognizing the People's Republic of China, this mammoth, you know, most populous country on the face of the earth. And so a lot of people don't really realize why this is important. It's kind of like I heard other commentators say. Oh, oh, but, but getting back to these post-democracy and now, uh, this journalist said, oh, well, why should we, the people of Taiwan, be held hostage to this 50-year-old agreement? And it's just so crazy. I mean, I've just been hearing such crazy arguments. I heard another commentator on CNN say, oh, you know, why is China being so provocative? Why don't they just ignore this? And basically saying that the Chinese are the ones provoking things and escalating the rhetoric and actions in this moment. So it's just really important, I think, for people to be really clear about who is provoking what, uh, to be really clear about this history of the Shanghai Accord, to understand that we would not want uh, a a foreign country, a foreign nuclear power, a world hegemon, to uh, visit, uh, uh, you know, the resistance movement in Texas, you know, any any of these states that that, that want to uh, every now and then declare that they may secede from the union, right? We wouldn't want them visiting the the rogue element in Texas and saying that you know we, we we're making an independent state visit to Texas, or that we would uh, you know the federal government would have a a fit over people visiting or uh, Puerto Rico or any of the other people, even Hawaii. You know people people who have. Um, a definite interest and right to declare themselves independent of the U.S., right? So I just think that they are, they're playing games, they're playing games with Nancy Pelosi's playing games with not only uh, this U.S. policy, but playing games with our lives. You know, whenever they do things like this, you know, uh, people are all tense. Is her plane going to land? You know, people in D.C. were wondering, are the bombs going to land here? You know, they're, they're droning. You know, this al-Qaeda leader, you know, when they do these things, when they, they kill the Iranian general, that puts all of us in danger. It's it's basically poking the, poking the dragon, you know, in Ukraine, poking the bear. And you think that nobody's going to poke you back ever, you know, maybe because we've never had a war on our soil. But I know so many people who live here in Washington, D.C., or even in that area. I know people who are just leaving the country, you know, because they're like, you know— these are people, these are rich people, millionaires like Nancy Pelosi, uh, maybe, uh, and, and actually she became a millionaire in, in while well, in government, right? So that, that shows you another type of criminality there. But uh, these people like Blinken, uh, who, you know, attended prep schools, uh, you know, they don't understand what I call kind of the playground, just uh, street smart. You know what I mean? They want to go around the world thinking that they can uh, continue to act like the hegemon, the, the big bully, not only on the block, but in the world, and think that it's never going to blow back, you know, as if, you know, these rising powers around the world are going to continue to have this, uh, this bully diplomacy and, and there'll be no consequences.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back. To so by any means necessary, you on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open 202 521 1320. That's 2. Zero two five two one one three two zero. I am here. Jackie Luke is here. Esther Aviram is here, and uh, Esther, I think you're quite correct when you talk about how the machinations and behavior of U.S. imperialism abroad. Can absolutely and has absolutely historically blown back on us. It doesn't blow back on the ruling class, you know. It doesn't blow back on the the Bidens and the Pelosi's and the Trumps and the Pences and the the Schumer's and the McConnell's of the world. It blows back on the poor, working, and oppressed people who have to face the brunt of class exploitation in this capitalist system. But along with that, of course. Comes the issue of political repression. And as many people have been discussing uh, this recent FBI raid on the uh, African People's Socialist Party in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and I believe uh, elsewhere as well, just a completely uh, uh, baseless speech. Spurious, uh, uh, sort of a justification for, uh, you know, this kind of repression against this political group, not because of anything they actually did, mind you, but uh, because of the supposed behavior of uh, a Russian person that they had some contact with. Uh, that was it. And so this, I think, shows, well, a couple of things. Number one, it shows the depth of uh, Russophobia in this country. And I think it also shows how the whole Russia Gate issue, which I think is just one of the most recent developments in America's sort of historic uh, uh, anti-Russia uh, uh, machinations that certainly uh, predate the presidency of Vladimir Putin. Um, but uh, th- there's a there's a neo-McCarthyite uh, dynamic to all of this. You know uh, this this this. Ridiculous hysteria that you know somehow Russians are going to use black people to tear down America and stuff like that that ensconces it. I mean, you know, we get a certain share of that here uh, just being on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik. But this is a serious thing that I think people should be really paying attention to, particularly uh, uh, movement people, because I think you know if folks are thinking that they're somehow um, exempt from this kind of attack by the state, then I just got to think they're sadly mistaken. And I feel like history is the best teacher on this. I mean, we have there's decades of documented evidence of uh, state repression of, uh, uh, you know, left wing and progressive political organizations, not with just people being raided, but being, uh, you know, uh, uh, summarily thrown into jail and prison and made into political prisoners, people being blacklisted, people being killed. I mean, people literally having their lives upended and ruined simply because, of their politics. And so, you know, Esther, I, I, I also think that this uptick in repression is yet another symptom of the ongoing rot that is eating away at the fabric of the U.S. And so I think uh, as organizers, not only we should should we be taking note of these things that are happening, but having some serious conversations about how we can uh, uh, organize to really fight the state apparatus that's responsible for this repression. Yeah,
6: And, you know, from a... And excuse me if there's a noise. I think there's somebody working on my roof. So if you hear noise, I can't stop them from doing what they're doing, whatever. But, you know, the idea that this is the, the most progressive, you know, government in power that we can have, you know, the Biden administration, the, you know, center right or right wing Biden administration, the right wing, you know, Democrats in Congress. The idea that under the so-called best that we can have, you have the the FBI raiding uh, a social justice organization, um, uh, detaining, uh, throwing what flashbang grenades and at the home of of our elders and uh, what zip tying them, handcuffing them, ransacking their house. Uh, this is uh, like you said, in this horrible traditions of the United States repression within the African-American community. But I think that the larger point is that, you know, in this post-Obama era, there's this idea that to be anti-racist, to be uh, so-called progressive means that you cannot, you uh, formulate ideas about what that means outside the United States. So you don't do that. You cannot have solidarity with uh, people in Africa, in South America, in Cuba, in Russia, that the, the idea of foreign policy, you know, may, I know you also talk to uh, Professor Joe Horn a lot. And it's just, he talks about how there's this idea that, uh, the deal was made in the 1950s among civil rights organizations like the NAACP that to talk about to get these concessions on human rights here at home, uh, the right to vote, the right to you know enjoy public accommodations, the right on wherever you want on a bus. That in order to get these basic kind of human rights concessions here at home, they gave up any say about foreign foreign affairs. Uh, so that, you know, kind of trend toward the kind of that, that blackness leadership class at that time uh, was to seek these kinds of concessions, you know, as, as a trade in for our ability to be Pan-Africanist.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Not to cut you off Esther, but I want to squeeze in a caller that we have on the line here, Adam, tell us what's on your mind. Thank you for taking my call.
7: Uh, big fan of the show. As a matter of fact, a very quick shout-out. You all know the reason that I began listening to Split Nick Radio when it used to be the Bluegrass Station. So uh dip my hat to you. Do all the good work. And uh, two quick historical nuggets and examples of how history rhymes is this raid on a socialist organization and then the publicity stunt that they offered afterwards reminds me very much of a JX.
0: Definitely. Well, thanks a lot, Adam. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Definitely, definitely want to thank you for your support and listening to us, just like we appreciate all of our listeners. But uh, Esther, your thoughts on our caller here.
6: Exactly. I couldn't agree more. I I think that it's important for people, for all of us to study these historical precedents, because the same people like Dulles who were, who were, Basically, you know, mouthpieces for the, the oligarchy, the 1%, and, and a part of that class themselves, they're the same people, uh, they're, I don't know, the people now are in that same vein. Certainly Nancy Pelosi, you know, she turned you know, up to one student, responded to one student uh, during, I think, the campaign who talked about socialism and said, no, we're capitalists, <laughs> you know, we believe in capitalism. And so when she goes around the world and using these terms like autocracy and uh, what is she saying? Democracy and autocracy. Uh, These are just words that they they don't have any meaning behind them. You know, what she's saying is that we believe in capitalism and imperialism. We stand for the the you know, the the century of humiliation of China. We want to put China in in a box. We want uh, all people of the global south. You know, whether there are people of color in Africa, you know, China, uh, Asia, Latin America, whether there are even, you know, uh, these white people in Ukraine who are basically uh, going to find themselves under the boot of US imperialism with their already being the poorest country in in Europe, uh, made even their situation being made even worse as the, the bill comes due after all this military spending and all these arms and all the oligarchs there, you know, getting their share of the grift, <laughs> you know, and, you know, there are plans underfoot right now to strip away labor rights there, to strip away the the rights that they kind of inherited, you know, when they were still a uh, part of the Soviet Union, and, and to basically uh, take away more of the public domain there and give it to the Uh, U.S. corporations or the Ukrainian oligarchs. So, yeah, I think that these terms, autocracy and democracy, they're just being used right now. That's the latest spin to really uh, talk about whether we're going to live under a system of imperialism and and neocolonialism or whether we're going to fight for socialism.
0: Yeah. and, And I think you're completely right about that, Esther, when you talk about how um, and this has been the, the sort of human cry, uh, for the, 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 the U S government for a little while now talking about how we have to defend democracy and resist autocracy. I mean, this, these are some pretty obvious dog whistle is that when, when they talk about democracy, they're talking about, uh, uh, these Western liberal type, uh, ways of governance, like we see specifically in the United States and Western Europe, as opposed to the autocracy that, uh, uh, is the the case in you know the big bad despotic uh, foreign uh, nation of China, and and I just can't help but feel that there's a you know just undercurrent of of just that 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 good old fashioned you know imperial uh, racism, as we know that white supremacy is so crucial and, and central to how uh, imperialism operates. When they even talk this way, and so yeah, I agree that. Basically that sort of uh language, that phraseology is designed to justify uh U.S. imperialist aggression against countries like China and others, or really anyone that doesn't kowtow to uh uh Uh, you know, uh, the whims of Washington as autocratic and things that need to be resisted and defended. And as we in many others have raised here before on the show, the U.S. claims to care about democracy, yet it has these deep ties and relationships with countries like Israel. I mean, we just saw um, uh, Joe Biden basically uh, bowing and scraping uh, at Mohammed bin Salman and again, walked away with nothing. So it's just one L after another for uh, uh, Joe Biden on the uh, uh, international scene. And, you know, it just really seems to me that it's a part of the evidence of the decline of imperialism and that the standing of the United States that it has enjoyed for so long, Because of its, you know, murderous, blood soaked, militaristic operations all across the globe, ravaging people, ravaging uh, whole governments, ravaging resources that, you know, their time in the sun is slowly but surely coming to an end. Empires are made to be destroyed and they all fall. We know this for a historical fact, and it seems to me that the time for the U.S. empire may be just about up. Don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but it also seems clear that uh, uh, the ruling class in this country are very aware that imperialism is on the decline and therefore is just acting out in the most dangerous ways and in ways that endanger Really, uh, all of us, but they don't seem to uh, really care uh, about the very clear, uh, uh, dangerous implications of the things that they say or do, as we see in the case of the Pelosi Taiwan trip and so many other things. And so clearly humanity is not a part of the calculus for the U.S. ruling class. Therefore, it is up to the poor working in a press to organize to uh, center humanity in this society. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. One, thank Esther rivera so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.
2: By Any Means Necessary.